Father, thank you for this morning that you have given us to gather once again in your house. Lord, we, we are your house. What a privilege it is to belong to you and to worship you, to worship your Father with you, to sing his praises together with us in this place. Lord, we worship and adore you and praise you for your goodness to us. You are so good, and your compassions toward us are new every morning, and your faithfulness is great. No matter the circumstances that any of us face, and there are many here today who are facing peculiarly difficult circumstances. And so, Father, I pray that you would undergird them this morning by your Spirit, remind them of who you are and what you are for them. Most of all, Father, I pray that we would be encouraged in the gospel today, that we would understand it better, we would understand what you want us to do in the light of your gospel and with your gospel. Father, I pray that you would make us a people who are unashamed of the gospel. Father, we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. I want you to take your Bible with me, if you will, and open it to the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. And if you could just remain seated, I'm going to read these few short verses. Uh, we're actually, last week, spent uh, the entire time on one verse. Next week, we'll spend at least... Um, a full Sunday on, on that one verse, maybe more. And, and the reason for that will become obvious as we go. But Romans 1, 14 through 16, just follow along with me as I read. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Romans, and he says, I am under obligation, verse 14, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. And so for my part, I am eager, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Now today I intend to pick up where we left off last time. As you know, we moved rather quickly through the first 15 verses of chapter 1 because of the nature of, of those verses, very introductory in nature for the beginning of this book. But now we've arrived at verses 16 and 17. And I suspect there may be other passages in uh, the book of Romans that we're going to spend this much time on, but this in, in particular demands that we be thorough. In verses 16 and 17, we are hitting the brakes because this is really the, the main thing in the book of Romans. In fact, last week, 35 minutes of preaching only yielded one half of one verse with its exposition and application. The reason for this is that verses 16 and 17 stand together as the cornerstone, the main pillar, the linchpin 
upon which everything else in the book of Romans hangs. Romans is all about the righteousness of God in the gospel of God for the salvation of the people of God. And this is the place where the epistle, in the epistles that where Paul takes the time to explain the theology of the gospel more thoroughly than anywhere else in the New Testament. Paul wants believers in Rome and here in Fort Worth to, to gain an understanding of the intricacies of their salvation. The Lord wants you to know not only that you have salvation, but how you have salvation. Where did it come from? What did God do? You don't need to know all of that to be saved. But God wants us to know so that we will glory in him and glory in what he has done for us and live the kind of lives that are both pleasing to him and joyful and fruitful for us. And so while it's certainly true that the essential core of the gospel is very simple, Paul never thought it was simplistic. There is more to the gospel than Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's a wonderful compressed version of it. As theologian Charles Hodge once said, the gospel is so simple that small children can understand it. And it is so profound that studies by the wisest theologians will never exhaust its riches. For this and other reasons that we touched on last week, Paul was never ashamed of the gospel. Paul was never ashamed of the gospel. He never thought that the gospel of Jesus Christ was in any way inferior to the teachings of men. In Paul's day, there surely were many philosophers in the places to which he traveled, and we know in Athens, probably also in Corinth and in Ephesus, certainly in Rome, which was the capital of the entire empire. There must have been no lack of highly educated scholars, expert in their grasp of all things philosophical and scientific. The academic pressure on simple preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ surely caused many to buckle. In fact, as we saw last week, Paul even exhorted Timothy to be careful because he was buckling under the pressure. But in Paul's mind... The gospel was infinitely superior to anything and everything that the world could contrive. And so he writes here at the beginning of his letter, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And the, the implicit question is, are you? Now, Paul is not asking that question. He's This is the beginning of his epistle, and he wants, to, he wants the brothers in Rome to know that he is unashamed of the gospel. To the contrary, he is proud of the gospel. He is excited about the gospel. He is ready to suffer for the gospel. In fact, if, if Philippians is correct, and it is, 
He considered it a great honor, a great privilege to suffer and even die with Jesus Christ if that's what it would take to know him more. And so he was not ashamed of the gospel. He says, I am proud, I am overjoyed by every opportunity to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul was a shameless preacher of the gospel. But last week we asked, what motivated Paul? What motivated him to remain faithful to his calling even in the midst of the pressure? I know that some of you listening to my voice and are in this room and maybe down the hall are in one of the local colleges. And I get it. There's probably pressures on you. If you are, if you are verbal, if you are vocal about your faith, if you tell people you are a follower of Jesus, you no doubt feel the pressure. And I just say, good for you. Good for you. Press on. We are here to encourage you. Press on. You can make a greater impact on your respective college or training center than, than you can possibly realize. And this morning, I hope to explain that to you. So why wasn't Paul ashamed of the gospel? Maybe that's the more simple way of asking the question. Not just what encouraged him, but why was he not ashamed of the gospel? And I suggested that there are three truths that he believed with every fiber of his being that kept his heart encouraged and motivated to be faithful with the gospel. And if we, if we were to truly believe these three truths we might be equally unashamed of the gospel. And wouldn't that be great? What kind of impact would that make on the world in which we live? We would be much more motivated, and we would be much more fruitful, I suspect, as a church. Well, we talked about this last time, but as I was studying it again this week, I thought there was so much more I should have said on this first point. So, do you mind? Let's just stick with the first point, and we'll, we'll get through the other two this morning. <clears throat> so we talked about these three truths. Number, number one <clears throat> was the limitless power of the gospel. The first truth that Paul clung to was the limitless power of the gospel. That is, the gospel is sufficient, listen carefully, the gospel is sufficient in itself to create faith in the hearts of sinners. We don't need the gospel and smooth-sounding religious music. We don't need the gospel and drama. We don't need the gospel and magic tricks and a mirror ball. We don't need the gospel and pseudo-signs and wonders. The gospel... The gospel doesn't need a contemporary Christian rock band to draw people to it and to cause people to want to embrace it. The gospel is sufficient, listen, all by itself. The gospel is sufficient all by itself. It is able, it is able to do everything that God intended for it. And the very gospel that we have today is, 
It's not a newer, more powerful, new, uh, kind of improved and updated gospel. Ours is not a new gospel. It is the very same gospel that the Apostle Paul preached in his day. It's the same gospel that Peter, James, and John, and all of the other apostles preached in their day. It is the same gospel. The story hasn't changed. The truth hasn't changed. Nothing has changed about it in 2,000 years. Though men have tried to change it, to add things to it, to take things from it, it is the gospel that you have repeatedly taught to your children, and it is the gospel that you, dear Christian, have always believed if you belong to him. As I said over the years a number of times, a faithful gospel preacher is like a waiter in a restaurant. He doesn't come with a recipe for how to create the meal. He doesn't cook the meal. He simply receives it from the kitchen. And when he receives it from the kitchen, he shouldn't add anything to it to make it more attractive, and he shouldn't take anything away from it to make the meal less unattractive. His job is merely to get the food to the table without messing it up. All by itself, the gospel it's the power of God unto salvation. The word for power here is the term dunamis from which we get our English word dynamite. Paul is telling us that through the gospel, God unleashes his omnipotent power to regenerate dead hearts and make disinterested sinners alive to God. And we have seen this so many times over the years. People who came to church every week, and some of you are here this morning and have been here for years and years and early on wondered, what is it that you guys have that I don't have? Why, why do you love the Bible so much? I don't even understand the Bible. And they heard the gospel a thousand times, but it never, it never took root in their heart. And then one day, it did. And everything changed. Everything changed. Friends, I want you to hear this. The power of the gospel is not a power, it's not the power of public speaking. It's not about one's ability to captivate the attention of a crowd or the person you're sitting next to on the plane. You don't have to wow them with a PowerPoint. This is, this is not the power of to affect a person's emotions with moving stories or, or even your own testimony, as wonderful as your testimony may be. No, the power of the gospel is the message of the gospel. The power of the gospel is the message of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 4, Paul was writing to the church of Corinth, and this is what he said. He reminds the church in Corinth that, quote, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him, what? Crucified. That's the offense of the gospel. I determined to know nothing 
among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness. You remember when he arrived at Corinth, he was sick. He came in weakness and in fear, in much trembling. He had just recently been been let go from the jail in Philippi. He had been beaten. When he arrives in Corinth, he's weak. He's no orator. And, 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 And imagine it. You've been beat up. You've been wrongly jailed. You've been terribly mistreated. You could have died. And you go to the next city sick. And what are you going to do? Find a hospital? (laughs) Paul just found some people to preach to. And he preached again, and a church was born. He says, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. You see, it's not how you present it. It's that you present it. The the power of the gospel is in the message of the gospel. And it's so easy in our world, there are so many additives that people have thrown in to make it more attractive or things that they have taken out. Paul would never do that. The power of the gospel is is the good news, faithfully delivered, You don't need to fix the gospel. You don't need to improve the gospel or defend the gospel. Just deliver it faithfully and praise God for the privilege. Praise God for the privilege of believing that the power of God for salvation is in the message that you have delivered. And turn in your Bible with me for just a moment to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Jesus told a number of parables that we are all familiar with. This one is probably the least familiar. I haven't done a scientific study on that. I just think most of us haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about this one because it's so short. You just kind of run through it, and uh, it's something about a farmer and seed, and, and there's a longer parable about that one. That one's more interesting. This one really hits the spot for this morning. This is Mark 26, I'm sorry, 4. Mark 4, 26 through 29. And he, that is Jesus, said, okay, listen carefully, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and he rises night and day. I think he means day after day, night after night. He goes home, he goes to sleep, and he rises. And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces, notice these two words, by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts the sickle in because the harvest has come. Beloved, this is the perfect text for what I've been trying to communicate to you this morning. According to Jesus, the role of the faithful evangelist is really twofold. Scatter the seed and gather the harvest when it's time. Scatter and gather. That's it. That's your job. And, and, and that's, that's all you can do. 
That's it. Your job is to minister the gospel in a rather narrow and simple way. You can't save anyone. God did not send his disciples out and said, go you into all the world and save people. They didn't have the capacity to save people. And you don't either. You can't save anyone. You don't have the power to make the seed grow or produce fruit. Your influence on the salvation of an unbeliever consists of one thing and one thing only, namely, that you faithfully sow the seed. That's it. In other words, tell the good news to everyone you know, and then take comfort in the fact that the results are not up to you. It doesn't mean you, you don't go back and water the seed. This is evidenced, by the way, by what the farmer in the parable does after he scatters the seed. What does he do? He goes home, and he climbs into bed. He rests. And then, when he wakes up and goes outside to check on his little seeds, he discovers that they're sprouting and growing. First the blade, then the ear, and then eventually the full grain. Now, the question is, how does that happen? How does the seed sprout and grow? Answer, from the part of the farmer, he doesn't have a clue. He has no idea. I mean, in the parable, he throws the seed, he goes to bed, he wakes up, the seeds are beginning to sprout. How does that work? I don't know how it works. It just does. And if you don't sow the seed, there will be no fruit. This is very, very simple. By some invisible power, it is given life and it becomes fruitful. It's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, even, even on the level of physical grain. I mean, scientists can explain it. They can break the kernel down into its parts. But where does life come from? You know, they have found jars of wheat and barley uh, under the pyramids after how many thousands of years? Not millions and billions, probably. But thousands of years. And they've taken some of that seed and put it in the ground and watered it. You know what happened? It grew. It sprouted. How does that work? We don't know. There is some power that comes and gives it life and makes it bear fruit. And so this is the way it is for us. No wonder Paul was unashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. When the apostle speaks about this process in 1 Corinthians 3, by the way, he simply says this, God gives the growth. God gives the growth. So here's what he says. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Your role in the process is relatively insignificant. You don't make the seed. You don't even understand the seed. Your job is just to go out and scatter the seed. Why? Because the work of salvation is entirely the work of God. Our labor with the gospel is necessary, yes, but completely dependent on God. God's labor is also necessary, and it is absolutely independent of anyone. God gives the growth. God gives the growth. 
I know some of you hearing my voice today, you have children who haven't embraced Christ and you fret and you worry. I get that. Understand that. But you know what? You can rest in the Lord. Scatter some more seed. Rest in the Lord. Scatter some seed. Go to bed. God gives the growth. Don't cajole. Don't leave tracks on their pillows. You know, don't, don't hang a Jesus thing from their mirror in the car or anything. Pray. Scatter the seed. God gives the growth. You can trust him. Can you imagine how encouraging this must have been to the Apostle Paul? He was never ashamed of the gospel because he believed in the limitless power of the gospel. He really, he really, I mean, his life was, was a daily adventure and daily hostilities, no doubt. But his job was relatively simple. Proclaim Jesus. Second, Paul not only believed in the limitless power of the gospel, he was not ashamed of the gospel because he believed in the boundless reach of the gospel. The boundless reach of the gospel. Note what Paul says in verse 16. Again, the whole sermon is on 16. The gospel of Christ is the power of God for salvation to everyone. The gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone. The word everyone here is pas in the Greek, which simply means all or every. And he doesn't mean that every human being will ultimately be saved. Uh, Paul doesn't teach universalism. In fact, he means that the gospel is for every kind of person. Every kind of people, or another way to say it is all sorts of people. We know this because the Bible is full of warnings that those who reject Christ and his gospel will perish and will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's why we don't believe in universalism. But the gospel is for everybody. Now, Paul wants us to know that Nothing has changed since the angels appeared to the shepherds in Bethlehem, crying out, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for who? All the people. All the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The gospel is for all people. It is for all kinds of people. It is for people who were born in Israel. It's for people who grew up in Uganda or Haiti. It's for the educated people. It's for uneducated people. It's for the poor and the blind and the lame, the healthy, the ill. It is for the disabled. It is for the privileged and the underprivileged. It is for married people. It is for single people. It's for people regardless of their skin color and cultural traditions. It is for children who grew up in evangelical churches and, and those who were raised with idol-worshiping parents, no matter where they are. It is for them. That's why the great missionaries went where they went. 
It's why William Carey went to India. It's why Adoniram Judson went to Burma. Because the gospel is for them. The gospel is for all kinds of people. No matter the breadth of their privileges or the depth of their guilt and sin. Just look at the person next to you and say this. The gospel is for you this day. I knew you weren't going to say it. Go ahead and say it. Look at the person next to you and say, the gospel is for you. The gospel is for you. Remember, one significant purpose of, that Paul had for writing this letter to the church in Rome is to introduce them to his plan to go to Spain where the gospel had never been preached. For Paul, believing in the boundless reach of the gospel was not merely an abstract, academic proposition. It was the modus operandi of his whole life. It was what made him get up in the morning. He wanted the whole world to have the privilege of hearing the message of the gospel. He couldn't control whether people received it or not. As much a scholar as Paul certainly was, he preached a very simple gospel. The point I want you to hear is that God's salvation is to everyone by means of the gospel. God is no respecter of persons. There is no class of humans that is excluded from the offer of salvation. People from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue can receive salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one's excluded. If you're here this morning, you may think, well, that may be true of everyone else, but not me. No, the gospel is for you. And you may say, you don't understand how sinful I am. No, I don't, but he does. And he died for all of that sin. He died in your place. This is the gospel. And so the old Sunday school children's song is really good theology after all. Red and yellow, black and white, they are what? They're precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. You know why? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Why was Paul shameless? in his preaching of the gospel, what kept him motivated despite the frequent opposition and his personal suffering? Paul believed in the limitless power of the gospel and he believed in the boundless reach of the gospel. And third, Paul believed in the effortless qualification of the gospel. The effortless qualification of the gospel. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God irrevocably gives eternal life. But please note the one significant qualification. The only people who actually receive this gift 
of salvation are those who, what's the word? Believe. You have to believe. Paul says, in, again, in verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You say, well, that's simple. Is it? It's easy to understand. But are you really willing to surrender to him? You see, to believe is, it doesn't merely mean that you've heard the facts and you accept those facts. It means that you internalize those facts. You see, there is a God, and he created you. And because he created you, he owns you. You belong to him, and you are accountable to him. And that's really bad news. It's really bad news if you've not been reconciled to him. But the gospel is the offer that you can be reconciled to God. And the way to be reconciled to God is to come to God in faith, believing that his good news is actually true. What does it mean to believe? Well, the word for believes means to have faith, to trust, to have confidence in something. In this case, the person who hears the gospel must believe what the gospel says, namely, that Jesus existed in eternity past as the creator of all things, that he came into the world as a real human being through the Virgin Mary, that he lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death. Did you get that? He lived a sinless life and he died a sinner's death. In our place condemned he stood. He experienced fully the wrath of God that we deserved. He then arose from the grave on that first Easter Sunday morning. He was seen by hundreds of people and then he ascended into heaven where again hundreds of people saw him go, where he ever lives to represent us before the Father. Friends, this is the good news. This is the good news. To receive the good news, to believe in the good news means, first of all, it means you have to understand or believe that you need it. In Jesus' first sermon, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And the way I love this, to unpack that is simply to say this. Blessed are those who realize that they are spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing to offer God but their sin. They know their sin. Believing in Jesus starts with understanding how sinful you are, no matter how good your mother told you you were. You know your guilt. You know your sin. You can hide it from others, but you know it and God knows it. And it's no different for the rest of humanity. You're no different than everyone else. You were born a sinner. 
And because of that, you are disqualified from a relationship with God, unless God does something. And that's the whole point. He did something. He left his throne and became one of us so that he would bear the wrath of God in our place. And he did. Friends, this is the good news. But this news will accomplish nothing in your life if you don't believe it. And by that, Paul means that you can be saved by believing the gospel. But listen carefully. You cannot get salvation by earning it through your own works of righteousness. Of all the people that I have spoken to about the gospel, and I ask them some diagnostic questions and ask them, why do, you think, why do you think God would let you into heaven? And the vast majority of them start their answer with the word, I. I've been pretty good. I haven't done anything really bad. I just think that God is going to let me in. I just think he'll be gracious and merciful on what basis? That's my question. Why would he do that? Why would he let you, a sinner, into his perfectly holy heaven? Answer, there is no reason. Not unless he does something for you that you are willing to receive. The first thing you receive is the truth that you are in desperate need of a Savior. You're in desperate need of a Savior. The sinner's effort to earning salvation by doing good works to overcome bad behavior is futile. You can't get salvation by doing good behavior and avoiding bad behavior. That will only secure your condemnation because you are trusting in yourself. And you know what? If you were to be able to trust in yourself legitimately, then all the glory would go to you. But you see, there's something bigger than saving you at stake here. God is determined to glorify his son. And the only way that that can happen is if salvation comes by the work of the son and not by yours. It is Jesus' finished work on the cross that matters. And so all of your so-called righteousness amounts to filthy rags in the eyes of God. You must, you must turn completely mind, emotions, and will to Jesus, leaving behind any effort that you otherwise may have thought would have earned you favor with God. It won't. It never has. No matter how good it made you feel about yourself, it didn't change anything from God's perspective. You need God to look at you and think of you as perfectly righteous, and you've already blown it. You must come to Christ with a heart that says something like this, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Here's how Paul says it in his letter to the Ephesian church, verses 2, 8, and 9. Ephesians, for by grace you are saved through faith, 
and that not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. You see God's motive here? There will be no boasting on your part. We will boast in Christ alone. We will boast in Christ alone. I one time was meeting with a group of former drug, well, some of them were present, uh, drug addicts and alcoholics over at Rodney and Dana's house years ago. And um, I was talking to him. He was a new believer, uh, coming to know the, the intricacies of the gospel and applying them to his heart. And we sat down one day, and I said, Rodney, if you were to die today, um, and, and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you tell him? And he's, he didn't know what to say. He does now, but his answer was great. He said, I don't know. I guess I would just look at Jesus and say, I'm with him. <laughs> that was the simplest answer I've ever heard and perfect. I'm with him. Do you long for reconciliation with God? Do you crave salvation through the com complete forgiveness of your guilt and sin? Then leave your efforts at the door. They're worthless for salvation. Fly to Christ. Fly to Christ. Fly to Christ. Get to him as quickly as you can get to him. Do it today. Do it now. Now is the time. Today is the day for salvation. Those who will be unequivocally accepted by God, no matter who you are, are those who come to him and receive salvation by grace alone, hence the gift, by faith alone, in Christ alone. This gospel of salvation comes from God through Paul to all people, no one excluded. He does say to the Jew first, perhaps because the beginning of God's redemptive plan was focused on the Jews, God referred to the nation of Israel. I did a, a search on this this week. Listen to how he referred to, in the Old Testament, referred to his little nation, Israel. He refers to them as my people, my chosen people, my children, my portion, my treasured possession. And among all the peoples, he called them the apple of his eye. God formed them in the loins of Abraham and saved them from slavery in Egypt with many signs and wonders and enabled them to walk on dry land through the Red Sea. He entered covenant with them on Sinai. He favored them by giving the tabernacle of his presence where they could actually see the radiance of his glory. He gave them prophets through whom he spoke directly, people like Moses. And finally, through them, he gave the world the Christ, the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, our Messiah. So, the gospel was for the Jews first, but it's also for the Greek. 
And I, I take Greek to mean everyone who's not Jewish, all the Gentiles. Though God's focus was originally on the Jews, he always had a heart to save Gentiles as well. And when the Jews rejected Christ, God sent his messengers to the Gentiles, especially the Apostle Paul. He sent Paul to the Gentiles. That does nothing to you. You know what you are? You're a Gentile. I don't know of any exceptions in our church, although we've had some over the years. We're the Gentiles. We're the ones that Paul was determined to reach. In the book of Romans, Paul is repeatedly concerned that we grasp the dynamic of Jews and Gentiles in his church and in his redemptive plan. And we're going to come back to that again. But here is a church, Jews and Gentiles. And Paul, who was a Jew, said, I've come to bring the gospel to you all. My friend, have you embraced this gospel? Have you laid aside your hope that God will receive you based on your works? Perhaps today will be the day of your salvation. It is for you, but only if you are willing to receive it on his terms. It is free, and it will cost you everything. And in the end, you will discover that it was the greatest bargain you have ever had in your life. This morning, you have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I plead with you not to harden your heart. Open your heart to him. Receive him by faith to the glory of Jesus Christ and for your own eternal joy. Let's pray. Father, what better way to start the book of Romans than to focus directly and extensively on the gospel, what it is, what it says, what it means, how it invites, how it transforms. And I pray, Father, I, I don't know anyone's heart. I hardly know my own. But I suspect that there are some here today at this very moment, the Spirit of God is tugging on their hearts, doing in them what no gospel preacher could ever do, calling them effectually, transformatively. Oh, Father, cause them to be born again to a living hope for your glory and for their own joy, we pray.